the most valuable business ever created once sat on that window of acceptability. And yours probably does too. And that's the point. He's like, where are you on the edge? What is the perspective of your company? What societal shift can you position yourself for in the future and take advantage of right now? Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, boss man. Welcome back to the show. Yo, what's going on? What's going on, man? Hey, we got a lot of really good responses from the shiny object syndrome topic. Today, we're going to read an essay from a listener. Reply to it. And we're also going to talk about some things that you cannot say, but we'll say them. We'll say some of them. We'll get to that. At first, a few news points at the top. Of course, last week, we launched our TMBA producer. If you want to be the person on this call with us, we'd love to hear from you. And I just kind of want to talk about this because I think founders do this a lot. I think I kind of screwed up with this job. And we see it happen all the time with our recruiting agency that founders call up Greg, our head recruiter, and they're like, you know, I want this. This is what I want. And then you sort of see the first few applications and you're like, ooh, I was wrong. And <laughs> I guess I want to like destigmatize it because I understand that professional companies with big brands, with established hiring practices and stuff might not do this. But hey, I haven't hired for a podcast producer since 2015. So it's not like I'm practicing. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and I think the job ad really emphasized the production part. And since 2015, Ian, podcast production has become like a thing that you can be and you can work at a big company and you can have seven hosts and you can manage the ads and you can show up and make sure the show's get out on time. But I realized and seen some applications from companies like that that do that, that, hey, we only produce an hour a week. The production part isn't the biggest part of the job. The biggest part of the job is being in love with business ideas, being in love with businesses, being in love with personal freedom and reading about it all week long, whether or not you're paid to or not, listening to podcasts about it, listening to audiobooks about it, checking out social media, seeing what's going on in the world and caring about it. And we're looking for someone who wants to make that a career. Someone who loves to read, someone who loves to write, someone who loves to talk about business and help us do so. So if I'm going to try to professionalize that, Ian, it's like, it's a content position. It's about reading, it's about writing, it's about working with us, it's about finding interesting angles on topics that are relevant to lifestyle business owners. And then the production part, you know, we can train that. We have a process we have produced 700 episodes. Like, We can train anybody to do that part. But you cannot train the love of, hey, are you going to listen to a business podcast in your spare time at the gym? Or are you going to listen to that weird podcast about that idea that someone told you about and see what it's all about? Are you going to trust your instincts that it's actually interesting when no one else cares about it and follow up and do the research? That, to me, is what a great Tropical MBA podcast producer would do. And we're really looking for someone who like loves the show and wants to make it better. And so as we're doing this today, I'm rewriting the job ad. Mea culpa. I'm going to retool it just a little bit. Not to say that if you've already applied, like it's a bad application. I just want to make sure we put our best foot forward and open up the opportunity to those who will be the best fit. Rant over. I made a mistake, Ian. What is new? I don't think it's really a mistake. I think this has actually been happening for 15 years, which is all the roles that we've been hiring for are basically new roles. They didn't exist for a long time. It's like a customer service, been there forever. General manager, been there forever, right? We've been trying to hire these roles in these internet-based companies. And sometimes we even struggle to like figure out what the job title is because it's never existed before. Do you remember when we first hired a community manager? Yeah. We were like <laughs> one of like four companies in the whole world to have like a community manager. And now there's a bunch, obviously, now. But like we had to come up with like new language. We had to come up with uh, new job descriptions that didn't exist. And so 
yes, podcast producer slash showrunner slash writer. That's been around for a long time, like in radio and video and whatnot. But the type of work that you're talking about right now, I think it existed, but it hasn't existed for companies like us in the podcast form for very long. Yeah, like content marketer doesn't do it for me because like there's a more of a creative element to it and there's more of like a necessity of the attention. Content marketer sometimes like presupposes attention to some degree. So when I think of this job, I think more of like the SNL writer's room. I just imagine like a Monday morning at Saturday Night Live, this comedy show that's like live bits and everybody's fighting to get their bit on the show on Saturday night because that's what's going to make them more money and make them more famous. And I think of that as an example. And then I think of also this title of like creator. For me, a creator is someone who builds for a specific channel in a way that wants to build attention. Like, hey, take a look at this YouTube channel or take a look at this Instagram account. We are creating things very intentionally to inform, inspire, and to grow our audience. And that's something that we really want to do here at the podcast for the podcast native channel. We want to create a great audio program. And for us, production is a little bit less about editing words and booking guests and a little bit more about generating segments, doing research and working with Ian and myself to pull out stories from all the entrepreneurs we hang out with all the time. Like we have a lot of good info. It's just a matter of getting it down on paper and getting it to the podcast. Just to be clear, Dan, we do know what the work is. I think it was like the title and the framing that was confusing. So here we go. Swing two. Honestly, we're talking about how new this is or how new of an industry. And when I said podcast producer, I just assumed it meant a lot of these things. Yeah. And it doesn't. That was one of the mistakes I made. Next piece of news, Ian. Put on your kimono on Tuesday. An adaptation of one of my favorite books of all time is coming out February 27th. We are going to have a Shogun watch party. Yes, that's right. James Clavell's incredible historic novel of feudal Japan is getting the full-on television treatment. It's launching, I believe, on FX. I don't care what it is. I don't even care. I'm just going to buy the membership and I'm going to watch Shogun. February 27th. I just want to flag it up because we've done a lot of book episodes. Personally, I read more than ever, especially because of audiobooks. And still, Shogun, when I'm looking for a book that's inspiring, that's light, that's adventurous, is fiction, but also feels true. Sometimes fiction can be closer to the truth, you know? I Reach for Shogun by James Clavell, this incredible story of the first British person to arrive in Japan and the circumstances under which he arrived based on a true story and what transpires is mind-blowing. I've read the book three times it would be on the conservative side. And I just cannot wait for February 27th to watch the television adaptation, the first one in 40 years. So I'm really looking forward to it. And I am looking forward to having an excuse to stop watching True Detective because it's absolute (laughs) garbage and turn my attention to this new show. So thank you. I bring it up because people listen to this show. They love reading, love adventure, and love travel. And I think that this is in some ways the ultimate travel book because just the collision of worlds is so, so cool. So I wanted to mention that at the top in case anybody's looking for something to do on Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One other piece of news, Ian, we brought up SDRs a few weeks ago. A sales development representative is essentially a person who works for a low base salary. They're often based in Latin America, at least for listeners of this show. They get paid a commission to book high quality sales calls for either your sales team or for the founder. That's an SDR. And people love them because right now in South America, It's just a moment where you got like North American companies hiring South American SDRs and it's like peaches and cream. It's just working right now. There's like a moment in time where you can get 
someone working for you in LATAM for $2,000 a month plus commission, which is relatively easy to pay out, right? Because it's tied to performance. And North American companies are accelerating their growth with this strategy. And this is something that was recently put on our radar by the recruiting team. And so after I brought it up on the episode, you can imagine those old like phone switchboards blew up. Ring. Because people didn't know we were doing this and we weren't talking about it. So I go back to the recruiting team and I say, you guys are sitting on a gold mine here. The SDR thing was great. What's the second most popular hire? You guys have done like over 400 hires. What's the second most popular? And they look at me like, what rock have you been under, dude? Obviously, it's a CSM. First of all, it's extremely hard to keep track of all these letters. This is what people do to try and confuse you, right? They're like SDR, CSM, where have you, B-E-E-N. Yeah. It's like hanging out with yeah. military personnel. I mean, yeah. it's like, what the hell? Does everybody understand what the hell you guys are talking about? It's like everything is an acronym. They're like, oh, OMG, it's a CSM. <laughs> I'm literally sitting on the call like, what is a CSM? I have no idea what the second most popular <laughs> hire is. So here it is for your consumption, Ian. It is a customer success manager. A customer success manager is the second most popular hire that our company makes. And I have no idea what they do. So I'm going to dig in right now and we're going to find out. A customer success manager makes between seventy dollars and $90,000 a year typically for our clients. Although for marquee tech companies, they can make as much as $130,000 a year. Our clients typically do not like to hire customer success managers in South America. Although they love to hire SDRs in South America. Interesting distinction. Why? Because you could save a lot of money because CSMs in South America can make two to $3,000 a month. It depends on the level of handholding and relationship level that you need from your CSM. So what our team told us is that a CSM is proactive customer service and account management, whereas a customer support representative, which I know what that is, by the way, that is reactive customer support. So this feels to me like these CSMs are being used by our clients, sort of like, it's like an account executive backing out the sales part. Yeah. And they're really focused on renewals, managing the face of the brand to the client. Literally, you're the relationship manager and downloading feedback about the product from the customers to the operations and development team. So there you go. The second most popular hire we've made from listeners of this pod is a three-letter acronym that I just learned, a customer success manager. They make between seventy dollars and $90,000 a year. What do you make of this CSM? I think a lot of our listeners are just more professional companies than we are, and they know these things. I think I make the same thing that I said earlier, which is like, everything's the same, but the names have changed. <laughs> these positions have existed in companies forever. We're just yeah. calling it something different now. And some of this just has to do with like selling software, right? And how the product operates and like how you have to follow up with people and account management and things like that. Account yeah. management, when you were selling like laundry machines back in the day, it was a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. And like, I think in agencies, this person is often called an account executive or a project manager. Yeah. And then for software companies or communities, it's called a customer success manager, stuff like that. So, or for productized services. So there you go, Ian. I thought I'd follow up because I did think the reaction to the SDR thing, I even got some really interesting podcast pitches on the whole SDR thing. So I thought I'd just inject the CSM issue that like these are two roles that the listenership is hiring the most of over at Remote First Recruiting. Ian, we got a lot of great responses last week to the shiny object syndrome pod. There's a pandemic of uh, shiny object syndrome going across the globe, the entrepreneurial globe. <laughs> I think people latched on to the Barracuda idea, which I was pretty happy about. You're happy about that. Oh, yeah. yeah, you had that mocked up. I own your whiteboard. You had multiple animal options. Exactly. Like, it's got to be Barracuda. <laughs> I, just, I, I just had that idea and I sketched a long skinny fish and everybody could start to visualize it. <laughs> well, 
One of the things I thought of was this concept of the gel man amnesia effect. This is one of my favorite coinages of all time. Something Michael Crichton, the famous novelist, came up with. And the concept resonated deeply with me because even though I know about the concept, it gets me every time. And it's simply this. The gel man amnesia effect is about your experience reading the media, especially when you have like a domain expertise. And so when you say like know about something like location-independent entrepreneurship, and then you read an article about it, you have this experience often where you're like, none of that's accurate. No, I just don't buy any of this. This is a bunch of garbage. Whoever wrote this really doesn't know what they're talking about. And I still remember the first time, I I probably told this story on the pod, I still remember the first time I've ever felt this way because when I was 17 years old, I didn't know anything about anything. So when I would read the newspaper, I'd be like, well, I guess that's true. I guess all this stuff is true. And then I did something historically significant. I went to Woodstock 99. I'm aging myself here. And when I came home from Woodstock 99, I read the newspaper about it and I said, that's really not true. None of that happened. This is completely false. I was there. I was on the ground. I don't understand what these people are writing about. So you have that experience, that disconcerting experience that maybe some of us have had about reading about entrepreneurship or reading about your hometown or a topic that you love or an expert in. But then you flip the page of the newspaper and you see an article about Germany and their political struggles and you say, huh, it's pretty fascinating what's going on in Germany. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like... Wow, deeply yeah. fascinating. I got to do a deep dive on this uh, the German political situation. And this is something that I struggle with and I think is so fascinating, which is how do we process the things written about the things themselves? And I think this has to do with shiny object syndrome. That's why I'm bringing it up. Because part of what happens is we read about a business opportunity on social media on the YouTubes or whatever. And we say kind of the same thing. It's like, based on my in-depth reading on social media, I'm pretty sure that this person is growing money on trees. That thanks to biological innovations, money does indeed grow on trees in this manner, in this niche, in this business model. And so we often see shiny objects on the other side of the fence because We see shiny objects in businesses that are far apart from ourselves because we simplify them. We have a naive take and we take at face value that that person is indeed growing money on trees or that the German political system is indeed that way. And yet we look at the complicated version of events happening on our own desks and we say, well, surely there must be a better way. I need to get into the money on trees business. And so I think they're somewhat related. And I mention it because if we know it, we can fight it and we can stay focused. And we're going to give some examples today of people staying focused and understanding that you're just seeing more and it looks dirtier because it's not a simplified picture always. And part of your job as a leader is to simplify the picture for those working on your team. So it's an interesting tension there that we all got to face. And just one thing about this money growing on trees on social media and stuff is that invariably, when you meet these successful founders, their business is just as much of a shit show as yours. And if you look at the data, it's not possible that all these people are growing on trees. That's not how competition works. That's not how small business works. That's not how business works. Fighting and working hard to build a profitable business that scales effectively is an extremely hard and rare thing to do. That's the bottom line. It's not simple. It's not easy. I just have not seen it. It's great marketing and it's great media to make it appear simple and to make it appear easy. That's basically it. What media is trying to do is different from the thing itself. And that to me is in some ways an idea that has pervaded everything we do in my adult life is figuring out what's the difference between the things and the things that people say about the things. That tension is utterly fascinating to me and can lead to shiny object syndrome. So there you go. Also for me, Dan, it's reason to try and meet these people in person. Yeah. 
whoever your hero is or whoever you think is doing really well, try and show up, try and figure out what their life looks like, try and figure out what their business looks like. And like you said, invariably, it will be some version of a shit show. It might be a, a version of a shit show <laughs> that you haven't experienced yet. So it's still interesting to you. But like yes. if you actually sit down with these people, they are envious of other people. And it's not necessarily people that are like further ahead or have more money. It could just be like people that have a simpler life, people that don't have as many problems, like whatever it is. Which is exactly nobody, as far as I could tell. I'm curious to meet the person. So one of the most interesting responses we got from last week's episode, Ian, was from Matthew Newton, who is the CEO of an adventure travel company, leatherbacktravel.com. If you want to take a gander, and suffice it to say, I didn't clear this with Matt, but this is a meaningfully large company in terms of revenue. So he's really made it. Well, I'm just looking at the number here. We have a big team, lots of revenue. He has scaled successfully, yet he claims to have shiny object syndrome. And he suffered for many years. So we're going to go into that. But first, I just want to give an example of the sorts of products he's got because they're so cool. Check out this. A Laos remote village check. So essentially, this is an 11-day trip to Laos that's concierge that has a community vibe and adventure vibe. And it's freaking expensive and it's sold out. Two trips are sold out in November. So this is the context. 11 days in Laos. It's multi-thousands of dollars and it's completely sold out. So we'll link up to Matt's company in the show notes here. So here's what he has to say about shiny object syndrome. He said, as someone who's channeled shiny object syndrome successfully, it's possible to grow a life where you're pursuing your creative entrepreneurial impulses without going crazy. We've launched a bunch of brands in the last 15 months, and all of them have gotten out of the gate successfully. And with each new addition, my life gets easier, not harder. It's not like my life is total chaos or things are straining without me. In fact, most things in the business are ticking along perfectly, and I'm just a few hires away from having it all run without me if that's what I wanted. And he said, I don't. The thing here is that I had to learn how to grow one business effectively first. And yes, that required dedication and commitment for a while. I failed a few times before I managed to build even a single business effectively. I read the Traction book, as we all do. Failed to implement EOS like almost everyone. Read more books, listened to more podcasts, taught myself the basics of bookkeeping, tried and failed at many different tactics, and succeeded at a few. It took so many years to have my first $10,000 month, something I was ashamed of. I felt like I didn't belong here. Here, he's talking about the DC community. I felt like something was completely broken inside. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment. $10,000 a month revenue. I just looked at his revenue number. It is way, way more than $10,000. It is dimensionally different than $10,000 a month. And I just want to underline that this is how leverage and scale works. And that's why we're in the game. Back to the quote. With each rep, I've gotten better. Now that I've started a few businesses, I'm a competent entrepreneur. Reps are underrated. The reason I'm able to start so many things right now without people grabbing me by the shoulders and saying, dude, focus, is number one, I'm effective at what I'm doing. Number two, I've designed my business around my creative energy. We've worked together to systematically launch brands that are the same business at the core, just slightly different to a different market, but requiring the same fundamentals of execution. By pursuing many different ideas within the same business model, I've been able to make use of my creative energy without it corrupting my ability to be effective. Number three, on top of that, I launched a new project that has also come nicely out of the gates, but so much of this is down to knowing exactly what I want to do with each step do the reps and the experience. With experience comes not just wisdom, but also muscle memory. Muscle memory, I love that. And to get muscle memory, you just need to take action. I'm sharing with you so that you can have some hope for the future. There is a version of the world where you can let you shine without killing your best qualities. All those things I did has given me an insane skill set. One day I'm teaching the principles of accounting. The next day I'm teaching marketing skills. And the next I'm coaching our chief of staff on how to be more effective at hiring. And it feels good. The only thing stopping you from getting there is doing the work. 
Matthew Newton, everybody, take a bow. A beautiful essay on shiny object syndrome. My takeaway here, Ian, is you have to respect your timeline. Getting the reps in takes years. And often what you're seeing, especially when those objects come in the form of another business, that's where you want to be. We're just not seeing the reps. And that once you build a stronghold and a process, you can indeed indulge the thing that got you in the game in the first place, which is the ability to see opportunities and the ability to go from zero to one. Now, I think this is why so many business theorists say that the messy middle, you know, 500,000 to a couple million dollars in revenue is where good businesses go to die. Because what Matt is talking about is getting through that messy middle. It's by pushing through, by learning about hiring, by learning about marketing, by learning about every functional area of the business, getting the reps in, getting through it. And guess what? I get to do it again. Zero to one. Here we go. Right? Back on the horse. The band's back together. You know, we're called the zero ones. And we're going to bring the band back together. But you got to get through that messy middle. And I think that that's why we've been talking about these kind of scale traction concepts so much on the pod because it's where so many of us find ourselves just wanting to pursue that new opportunity, but also feeling the pull of like, you got to build this business too. You know, one of the things that has been one of the most enduring lessons from our fine ebook before the exit available at major Amazon retailers everywhere is the concept of the rose colored glasses. And that a lot of founders who sell their businesses essentially look back and miss the platform. And they realize that the ultimate zero to one platform is a business. In other words, I sold my business to go chase a shiny object. But what I actually did was I sold the shiny object factory. I had a shiny object factory. It specialized in making shiny objects. <laughs> and I sold it to go chase a shiny object. And I had these stupid rose-colored glasses on that made me confuse the product coming off the line. I saw it as the thing that was frustrating me on a day-to-day -day basis, but they were actually shiny objects. And so this is actually one of the biggest takeaways and what Matt is realizing in person. He said, I'm not walking away from this thing. Why? Well, he's telling us because he's built a shiny object factory that he can come to work in the morning and he can have an idea and because he's trained a team and he's hired quality people and because he's got the revenue going, he can do the idea. And that's what founders miss when they sell their businesses. Yeah. And it's not that every founder wants to do this, but no. I think every founder has like a tendency to do this. And if you're in a position like Matt, where you do like to do this, like you said, it's perfect. Train totally. everybody up, have a platform, come to work, do what you want to do. Yeah. And some people don't even relate to what we're talking about right now. They're just like, I don't understand. Shiny objects suck. I'm totally fine doing what I'm doing. <laughs> it just feels like there's a big subset of us out there that there is this trend of thought. And I think Matt's really handled it well. So kudos to you and thanks for sharing. Ian, speaking of coinages, we talked about the Gelman amnesia effect. I was looking into this concept called the Overton window. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. The backstory is the Overton window was a concept that was created by a political strategist. And the idea was, is that ideas go from taboos to you can't say it to now some people are accepting the idea and the height of acceptance is policy. And popularity comes before policy, right? And the whole reason this Mr. Overton came up with the Overton window is kind of creating a framework for how think tanks and grassroots organizations could turn fringe ideas that they wanted to be policy into policy mm -hmm. and how to move things around. And I thought, this is a really interesting concept to reflect on as a founder because a lot of really great businesses have a strong perspective about something that's just on the line of acceptability. and. I believe this is something, even if you haven't thought about this explicitly, you can kind of bake back into your business as a way to gain marketing traction. So I just want to reflect on it a little bit. I think in all of our niches, there's things that 
you weren't really able to talk about 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And then those things shift. And the businesses that are right about those things tend to be really well positioned to blow up. One of the ways to grow wealth in the world is to be a technology disruptor. And that's what we read about a lot online is someone was sitting around in San Francisco at the right moment when like an iPhone arrived in their left hand and a payment platform arrived in their right hand and and they put it together. They raised some money. They got some smart people on it. Bam, Uber exists or whatever. And one of the ways that bootstrappers can be disruptive is by identifying societal disruptions. And this is why the Overton window can be interesting. Let me give you Mark Manson. Mark Manson is the author of A Subtle Art of Not Giving a You-Know-What. Well, someone once asked him, what is the way to get rich and successful? Young people look up to Mark and they say, how do I get rich and successful like you, Mark? You know what Mark said? I'm going to freaking answer that question. And he did. And here's what he said. He said, you need to be a contrarian. You need to believe something that most people don't believe. Then here comes the fun part. You need to be right about it. That's very interesting. And then he said, you need to work your ass off. I like that. (laughs) Let's talk about what Mark was right about. Mark, I don't think he would put it this way, but I believe he got his start teaching dudes how to get laid. Dudes wanted to get laid. Mark knew how to get laid or he knew how to write about getting laid. And so he wrote about it. And I feel uncomfortable talking about getting laid right now on the podcast. That's an Overton window thing. But guess who didn't feel uncomfortable about it? Mark Manson or whatever his pseudonym was. He would go into a community and guess what? Overton windows shift in sub communities. That's what a scene is. A scene is a place where the Overton window shifts and we can talk about different things in the scene, right? You say the scene. It's a place where I know I can openly do drugs here. Or it's a place where I know I can openly talk about X or Y. Well, so in the mid-2000s, a bunch of young men changed their names, went on online forums, and started talking about how to get laid. And okay, on the one hand, no wonder it's off out of the Overton window. That's not something we want in mainstream society. That's not cool. But what this scene had recognized was you have a generation of men who are different than the generation before, and they're displaced in random cities that they didn't grow up in. Now you show up, you don't have a community context or a family context, and you have to just meet people and all of a sudden start a relationship. How do you do it? We go online, we build the pseudonyms. This becomes the pickup industry. So Mark, through being part of a scene, realizes something that was contrarian. And it wasn't that guys want to get laid. That, that was not the contrarian perspective. The contrarian perspective was guys are willing to read long-form content about how to improve themselves. And at the time, this was not a perspective shared by the mainstream. Therefore, in the Overton window talk, you would say, this is not policy. It's not going to become policy because it's not popular. But Mark knew that that position was going to be wrong because he saw the guys reading it. He saw them engaging. He saw them improving. Fast forward 10, 15 years, and Mark Manson is one of the biggest self-development authors in the world because he saw something that was outside of that window of acceptability. He believed in it. He invested in it. He was right about it. And he worked his ass off. There you go. Rich and successful. So maybe the Overton window is a bit heady. We can maybe create our own TMBA version of it, which is like, seems a little stupid at the time. seems a little uncomfortable at the time. Can I give you another example? And this is going to sound strange now. One person that's coming across my radar very often lately is Andrew Henderson. He started an eight-figure productized service company called Nomad capitalist. Nomad capitalist charges $28,000 a year to be a part of a sort of a suite of productized services that help you internationalize your business. And you can get a premium version that's like $75,000 a year. This is an eight-figure business. He's got nearly 800,000 subscribers on YouTube. Now, 
I met Andrew Henderson, nice guy. I met him right when he started this thing. At the time when he started Nomad Capitalist, this was content non grata. And it's hard to imagine now. When you go to Nomad Capitalist, the brand is great. He says, go where you're treated the best. Go where you're treated the best. If you're not being treated well, go to the next country on the buffet. Just step down the line, get the new spoon. They're going to treat you better over there. We had discussed personally whether or not we wanted to get into space. Tropical MBA, Nomad Caps. There's adjacent issues. At the time, we owned multiple offshore companies. And I remember discussing it with you. And we both thought, can't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Just cannot touch this space. It was outside of the money tin window for us. <laughs> also, a bit taboo at the time. Andrew, if I remember meeting him in Bangkok, he was the only Westerner that I'd ever met that was backpacking in a suit. <laughs> Which it looks like he still wears today. That's so, grand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the time, there was this wonderful blog called Sovereign Man. And Sovereign Man was hugely popular in this great business, and it still exists to this day. Actually, it'd be great to do a deep dive on, on what happened there, but it was very doom and gloom. It was like, you know, the government's out to get you, the IRS wants to steal your money, and the next world war is going to start soon. And you really thought that in this space, the IRS is out to get everybody, you know, because <laughs> there just wasn't a lot of light shined on the space. And so it looked creepier than it was. And then as more light gets shined on these things, it becomes what Andrew Henderson's tagline is, which is, hey, just go where you're treated the best. Actually, companies have been doing this for a long time. It's not just a bunch of people trying to evade taxes, do shady things. This is like a genuine thing that legitimate people and companies will want to do these things too. And there's a lot of businesses that is. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when the UFC came out. And I remember how people thought about that at the time. This isn't legitimate. This is people like hurting each other. That's not sport. And I read a, a book about the NFL. When the NFL came out, people thought that was on the edge of accessibility because college football was the right way to play football by amateurs. And so paying people to play this beautiful game, not possible, turned out to be, by the way, maybe the most valuable business ever created once sat on that window of acceptability. And yours probably does too. And that's the point. He's like, where are you on the edge? What is the perspective of your company? What societal shift can you position yourself for in the future and take advantage of right now and bring to light these things that are not even taboo is the side of the Overton window where really bad things happen. But think about the relatively mild things people aren't willing to say in public. I remember, here's a little story from America. I'm going to get political for one moment. Part of the reason a lot of people in America didn't think Donald Trump had a chance to win the presidency it's because there's a big portion of society that wasn't willing to admit that they voted for him. And it was unacceptable to say, well, if you started a media outlet that gave a little light on that and let that opinion come out and create a safe space, to use a modern political language, create a safe space for these fringe ideas, that can be a really good position for a company. So many examples of this, Ian. I remember considering, and I never did this, never did this. I remember considering driving to a bad neighborhood to pick up a crappy bag of weed. Hmm. I, I considered it. I considered doing that because I'm curious about the product. Nowadays, you walk into these dispensaries and they look like Apple stores. But if you would have told me that when I was 20, that that thing existed, I'd be like, that's crazy. That's so far outside of the Overton window. It's not going to happen. And sure enough, it's one of the fastest growing industries in America. That's just a societal shift. There's no technology. There's no Uber. There's no big uh, Google breakthrough. You don't need Silicon Valley money. You just need to understand that there's a societal shift happening. What I think about back in those times, because I also never did that in my whole life, but the people that were uh, not agreeing with me at that point in my life with those types of decisions, think about where they were getting their information from, the places that they were reading that they thought that was unacceptable. Again, it's so contextual. They had a context. You had a context about how you felt about whatever it was that you were trying to do at that particular time. And the same thing still exists in business today. So it's, well, you can't start that kind of business. That's never going to work. That's not the future. 
that's never worked. So you got to understand the people that you're going up against, they're going to be wrong in a lot of cases if you're right. And you got to ask yourself the question or the reasons why they're advocating for you to be wrong. And I think a lot of it just comes from lack of understanding or not wanting you to get ahead in life or not really caring, but also having an opinion that's uneducated from someone else. Yeah. Or what works to maintain societal fabric and family fabric and community fabric might not be the best thing for your business on Monday morning. So separating those things can be tricky though, because we take our whole selves into the office. And just because you don't want to step out and just respect somebody at Thanksgiving dinner doesn't mean your business can't take a stronger perspective about a potential shift in society. So just because you have an idea about the way that you think business should get done and it's not the way that it's getting done now doesn't mean it's wrong. Just means that you're wrong place, wrong time, potentially, or you're early. And if you're early, then you're going to have to fight through some to get through it, right? You're going to have to armbar the haters. You're going to have to run towards the... Give them the Heisman. Exactly. (laughs) And when you get there, everybody's going to celebrate you and they're going to be like, man, that was an amazing play. We've never seen that happen before. And now all of a sudden, it's called something. Right. Yeah. But it's not going to be easy to get there. All right. So we talked about Overton window, which is like the heady political stuff. One of the coolest examples I read of the Overton window, Ian, was Muhammad Ali, who believed something at the time of the Vietnam War that a lot of Americans believed, but didn't really say when they drafted him to go into the military, he said, yo, why am I going to go bomb Vietnamese people? Like, Meanwhile, like my people are getting treated like crap here in America. That does not make any sense. Like, I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to sacrifice my career to get this message out there. And this is why now the mainstream in America considers Muhammad Ali a hero. And that is policy. We have Muhammad Ali foundations. We have Muhammad Ali lighting the torch at the Olympics. That is popular. And at the time, he got arrested for having that opinion. This is an example of the Overton window. Bunch of cool examples. But we're talking about in a business context, which is instead of technology shifts, you can take advantage of societal shifts. Okay, looking around at societal shifts can feel shiny object inducing. We don't want to do that. So I want to zoom in a little bit and talk about how this can get done in our businesses. We can call it instead of a societal shift, a scene shift. Because a lot of times the best ideas are just Duh, they're right in front of you. And if you push through something that's scary or awkward or not being done and position yourself on the edge of an opportunity, you can see a shift happen and then be well positioned. I just want to bring up a few examples of this having been done. Recently, there's been a podcast that's been getting huge, huge traction. Chris Williamson started a pod in 2018 called Modern Wisdom. He's moved to Austin, Podcast City USA, baby. Everybody lives here. Anyway, the point is, I heard the story about Chris's podcast. Who is this guy? Why is everybody watching his pod? It's really not that differentiated from so many of the interview podcasts we see out there. In fact, if you were going to start a podcast in 2018, you probably wouldn't say, you know what you should do? You should sit people down for a couple hours and do an interview with them. Kind of been done before. It's been done before. And this is the mainstream. It's popular. It's the accepted idea. Sometimes all it takes is to push through one barrier and shift that scene a little bit. Chris understands at the time that podcast is a medium that is growing on YouTube. But all the podcasters just put out these garbage videos where it's two heads talking. But there's a big audience for this. When you have guests that are famous in the culture, people want to see those guests on more than one podcast. So they do the rounds, right? You find one of these people like a Sam Harris or like a Joe Rogan. And you're like, wow, they're doing a podcast tour. I'd really like to see multiple interviews of someone I really admire on all these different shows. So you go to YouTube and you see all the clip. You type in Sam Harris podcast interview. Well, all of them look like garbage because all the podcasters were putting up garbage videos. And so Chris decides this needs to be taken seriously. I'm going to create a studio environment and put out great clips. And those will create great shorts. So that way, when someone types in a very topical point, like Jordan Peterson talking about gender rights in America or whatever, 
guess whose clip is going to come up number one? The person who understood that there was just one scene shift yet to be made, which is YouTube is now an important growth platform for podcasters. What can I do about it? Well, no one's going to search for Chris Williamson, but they are going to search for Jordan Peterson. So if I can deliver the highest quality clip, I might get positioned higher than a Joe Rogan or higher than a Lex Freeman. The key insight and a scene shift that YouTube changed the podcasting scene and there's makes an opportunity for someone. To, and again, it's not a shiny object. It's like you're already doing an interview podcast. You're sticking with your business model. You're sticking with your approach, but you're looking for a scene shift. Mark Manson is an example of this. Mark Manson realized that all he needed was one little tweak that people didn't want the darkness of the pickup scene on this self-help for men. And so when he changed his domain from postmasculine.com to markmanson.net, Facebook picked up his stuff and he grew this one little push through, which is it's going to change my brand to position myself at the new side of the scene, which is men want to read my stuff. Women want to read my stuff. But here's the important part. They want to share it. What's the percentage of things you read on the internet, Ian, that you don't want to share with other people? Most of you them. <laughs> well, that's something to think about as you scene shift and you find yourself in scenes. Can people share? Can they be proud that you're a part of what you're doing is another way that Mark Manson found the edge of that scene? Another example, Pat Flynn. Pat Flynn started a blog called Smart Passive Income Blog way back in the day, because he had an info product selling courses to architects. And he was making a couple bucks online, like, you know, five, four, five, six thousand every month. This was the innovation. Everybody at the time thought, there's all these gurus online. The worst thing you can do is be a guru. So what Pat did was positioned himself at the edge of the scene and said, I will be the anti-guru. It's just a zig when everybody else is zagging. This is all we're talking about. It's a way to stay focused, but also to take advantage of what we're learning about Overton windows and societal shifts. He's saying everybody is doing this right now. I'm going to do the opposite. And guess what? This is going to sound crazy to a lot of you listening, but at the time, it was shocking that Pat Flynn posted his income report. And he told everybody how much money he was making. Because he knew he wasn't in the architecture course game. He knew he was in the guru game. We were all like, man, how do you become a Bluehost affiliate? I got to get on that. (laughs) (laughs) And why it will sound crazy to so many of you is that all you need to do is open up Facebook or Twitter and someone doing their morning constitution is on their iPhone telling you how much money they made in the last 20 minutes. And this has become popular. It's also become Policy, build in public. Build in public is now a strategy. When Pat Flynn did it in like 2009, 2010, it was, here's another three letter acronym I wrote down WTF. What is this guy doing? He's crazy. Should we do it? No, we can't do it. It would destroy our business. We're never, no one's going to do it. Ian and I didn't even say what products we had till three years later. I mean, this was shocking. But there is always the edge of what you're doing right in front of you in every business. And you can find the edges. And that is as crazy as logging onto a forum and lecturing dudes about how to get laid who are 22. And it's all weird. And it all doesn't make sense until it does. And then you're rich and successful. So back to Mark Manson. Be contrarian. Just be brave. Be right. That's the hard part. And that means you got to be a part of it. You got to be living it. And that's why it helps to do something in your lane versus the shiny object. Do something right in front of you that you know because the chances that you're right are better and then work your ass off, which we all do anyway. So that's easy. Just want to point out, it could go very wrong too. Like you're in a group and like one guy raises his hand and he's like, MDMA is helping me with my childhood trauma. And everybody like turns around, they're like, what are you talking about? And then the second person does it. They're like, He's right. And then the other person says, ketamine's helping me with my trauma. And then a couple other people try it and they're like, yeah, they're kind of right too. And the third guy's like, heroin's helping me with my childhood trauma. <laughs> and everybody just looks at him like, I don't think so, man. I don't think that's going to work out. <laughs> heroin is not so bad. You know what I mean? 
It gets a bad name. It gets a bad name. <laughs> the beautiful part about this is you can fight for things that you think are right, too. And it's a tricky game because a fervor for something you believe in can also lead you astray. What I take from a lot of this is um, it's really important to have a perspective. And especially if you're a business. Now, everybody has a perspective as an individual, of course. We all go around trying to tell our friends and family things that we believe that they should believe in that they don't necessarily believe in and convincing them. But it's really important to have a perspective as a company. And something we can all have a little bit more of without risk, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the value in that is that people get to agree or disagree with you. Just like you get to listen to the show and you get to say like, these guys are dopes. These guys are onto something, right? At least you have an idea about what you believe. and you, you can go out and spread that belief or you can disagree. But the opportunity, I believe, comes from having an opinion. You've become the lightning rod for ideas. People start to come to you. They start to ask you questions. They start to give you things because you've put yourself out there as somebody that is willing to discuss something. Not that you need to be right about anything, but you want to discuss something. So I well, think there's a lot of value in having a perspective. In fact, I think that's what a lot of the internet lacks these days is perspective. It can't just be search results. That doesn't work. What we need is this is my idea about that. If you agree with me, participate. If you don't, get out of here. I think that there's something fun about that. I think there's something strong about that. I think there's something scary about that too, because a lot of times it can be coming from a perspective of like a hill that you're going to die on, but I don't actually think you need to die on that hill. You just need to put a stake right. in it and have people agree or disagree and then move on to the next hill. And eventually, yes, you will be walking up a hill one day. Yes, you will put your stake in it and you will die. But that might just be circumstantial. That might not be because of the stake that you put in the hill, just because you walked up a lot of hills. So. <laughs> I love it. Well, the hill I'm walking up today is that Shogun by James Clavell might be the most satisfying read of all time, especially after 8 p.m., when you're ready to be transported into a world of adventure and political intrigue in feudal Japan. Is the book better than a movie? We don't know. We're going to have to wait till Tuesday to find out. I really hope that you don't get your heart broken on Tuesday. <laughs> I'll be rooting for you because I know that man. these things happen. That's it for today. Just a quick recap. We are talking about shiny object syndrome and we are relying on your feedback and essays to such. Thanks to Matt Newton from Leatherback Travel for writing in about his experience overcoming Shiny Object Syndrome with his incredible company. Today, we talked about the Overton window, how you can position yourself in a scene to take advantage of taboo topics to cash in. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.